Every rabbi who speaks about politics from the pulpit, they basically have a Democratic or a Republican synagogue. And I think that that's a bad way to have a synagogue. From Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I am Andres Pokoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in Jewish philanthropy and in the Jewish community in general. Along the way, we build a deeper sense of community, we share stories, and we get to know the people that are shaping and changing our field. We also help spread ideas that can help Jews and givers change the world according to their dreams and visions. Our guest today is Rabbi David Wolpe, Senior Rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles and a leading author, columnist, and speaker. I was thrilled to speak with Rabbi Wolpe and our conversation ranged widely over Jewish meaning and identity, religion and intellectual life, authenticity, polarization, and so much more. One quick warning though, the audio quality of this conversation is not where we would like it to be. We recorded this on the road and it was one of the first interviews we recorded. And what can I say? We're still learning to do this podcasting thing. But I wanted to share it with you anyway because Rabbi Wolpe has vital things to say about where the Jewish people finds itself in this moment. So please, pardon the audio and thank you for your patience. But I think you'll surely enjoy it. Thank you, Rabbi Wolpe, for being here and having this conversation. Happy to do it. And I'm going to share with you something that I'm wrestling with um, in the philanthropic community, which is we are investing a lot of efforts, a lot of resources in creating the frameworks of Jewish life and not enough in filling those frameworks with meaning. So how do you, how do you see from, from your point of view this communal quest for meaning? I think one of the problems is that meaning is a very elusive thing. I mean, things that are meaningful to you might not be meaningful to me and vice versa. So I don't know how you invest with me in meaning other than investing in both learning and presence. And by that, I mean, um, one of the, the most meaningful things that I see in my community are when people show up for other people. I, mean, I do a lot of funerals. I do a lot of Shiva Minyanim when people have passed away. And, and it is always unexpectedly powerful for people. They say, you know, I've been a member of the synagogue for so many years, I had no idea how much it meant that people show up when I've lost someone I love. So in that sense, I think the small commute, the communal part is well done. Um, the day-to-day meaning, I'm not sure we're doing as well as we should be, in part because we are not transmitting the lessons of tradition the way we should. And also because a lot of the structures that we have of Jewish life are not speaking to people. A hundred years ago, you were what society told you to be. And today, you have to build your own identity. It's not even that you have to choose. You have to build it yourself. So, Anna, I don't know if we're helping people enough to do that. I think it's, that's absolutely true, that identity is not a given. And there are many different identities, many more that you get to choose from. It used to be that you were the tailor's son who lived in this town, right. and this was who you were. 
now you can your political identity and your religious identity and your national identity and the identity of you as everything from you know i don't know a chess player to a swimmer to a to a watcher of game of thrones these are all different identities that people have so out of those multiple identities how do we craft one that is at its core jewish and meaningful is a very it's a tough enterprise any ideas of the things that worked for you um First of all, like all such, like all identity, it's better if you start young. And so the, inst I, the institutions of Jewish life that work, I think, are the institutions that let you know that the parents have a big investment in your identity. So when you send a kid to a day school or you send a kid to a Jewish summer camp, it's not a trivial investment of time or of money And so the child knows this is really part of the core identity my parents want to build for me, even though they don't articulate it that way. They know. Oh, I, told, I tell them. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, know, you better say the, the money standard, yeah, because you know how you're, much your tuition costs. That's <laughs> right. And I, I remember when my daughter, who is now 22, when she first went to college, having gone to day school her whole life, she was actually surprised at the fact that other kids who weren't Jewish didn't know some of the things that she thought right. were sort of universals. Right. And that reinforced how much we had given her as her identity. And it was a good, it was a good lesson. But you, you see, talking about identity, uh, some sort of a social construct, okay? Yes. You get it from the family, you get it from the yeah. And I'm wondering if in the 21st century, uh, that model of identity as a social contract is a little uh, insufficient. And I'm wondering whether we're not, we shouldn't invest more in thought and, and, and learning into the big issues of life, the big questions of life. And you, you I mean, you wrote about illness and loss, and, and I feel that in the community we're sometimes a little bit afraid of dealing with those questions. I think you're right. I think that we don't have as much In a strange way, we don't have as much confidence in the tradition as we should have. Right. That is, the people who have confidence in the tradition tend not to be the moderns. They're more the literalists who believe that modern life doesn't have anything to teach them. The people who believe that modern life has something to teach them don't have confidence in the tradition. Right. And, and yes, you have to combine those two. Right. If you don't have some kind of deep Jewish learning and commitment, you can't transmit those kinds of meanings to your kids. And that's... That's a loss. Yeah, and uh, and I think that something, some things in the way we organize Jewish life are detrimental to that. I mean, if you think today, the people that should be the thinkers and the, and the writers, they're basically fundraising. Yes, I think that is, I, that is no doubt that that is true. And also the educators are not, don't have the status right. that they used right. to. something that also concerns me, and, and I don't know if it's rightfully or wrongfully, but I, I, I think that there is a dearth of theological thinking in, in the general society and in the Jewish world. Like if, if I ask you for a, for a Jewish theologian today, I mean, you can tell me Arthur Green, I've Michael Wiesegrod, but I've thought, about really this. Bring, yeah. I've thought about this a lot. Why is it that the, the major Jewish theologians of the last hundred 10 years are all people 
who were almost all trained in Europe and came to America. Uber and Heschel and Soloveitchik. And, and Kaplan. Was and Kaplan, in, in, right. That concept, right, and, yeah. and Rosenzweig and all of them. Uh, Rosenzweig never came to America, but... Um, and America does not seem to be able to breed theologians or, for that matter, it, it's not doing as well in philosophers except in analytic and linguistic philosophy. Uh, there's something about this culture that doesn't... That is not. It's not easy to discuss these questions of deep meaning. I right. agree with you. And 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 it's it's self defeating in a way. It's self like we're now in San Francisco, and yeah. I was reading this article about Google trying to hire philosophers, and it makes a ton of sense because when you talk about things like quantum computing, and you're talking like those are the, the yeah. philosophy, like because talking about quantum things it means talking about the meaning of reality. Yes. What exactly. is real and what is not real? Right. Like what exists and what doesn't exist. Yeah. Like and, and we we're, we're afraid. I mean, I have a theory that it's that liberal Jews we tend to be afraid of bringing theological thought because we don't want to talk about God too much. Right. Exactly. There's no question. I've been talking about that for years. And part of it, by the way, is because we're speaking in English. Right. And English is a Christian language. It doesn't sound Jewish to us. So when you say love or faith or grace. These all sound like Christian words. Right. If I say bitachon, that sounds great. If I say faith, it sounds Christian. Right. And right. so right. it's it's very true. But I think that the Orthodox shouldn't be smug about this either, because I think that in the Jewish world, in the, in the Orthodox world, sorry, Allah is replacing theology. Yes. I mean, there's sort of an obsession with the minutia of Allah that, you know, it's also there because of the fear of engaging in deep theological questions. It's the fear of engaging, and it's also the way now that you prove you're authentic. You prove right. you're authentic by being more legalistic than... And and here, by the way, I think the Ashkenazi world could learn something from the Sephardic world, because right. the Sephardic much world... Much more organic. Much right. more organic. It didn't play that game <laughs> as right. much as right. the Ashkenazi right. world did. Um, and there wasn't a need to close itself. In that. There wasn't. Right. But part of it is we don't live in organic communities because communities are what give rise to, to the kind of practice where you're allowed to be liberal because, well, my father didn't do it that way or my mother didn't do it that way, but uh, obviously the way my parents did it is authentic because they were my parents. Right. But how do you define authenticity these days? I mean, at the end of the day, our entire Jewish landscape is, is not authentic. Meaning, right. that's, <laughs> that's too strong. What I meant is that the Jewish communities of today, the Jewish ideologies of today, they're all 200 years old. Okay. I mean, reform right. is 200 years old. Conservatism is 180 right. years right. old. Chabad is 200 yes. years old. Right. So they're not authentic in the sense that they represent a break from the pre-modern Jewish world. So it's kind of funny when different groups fight to see who's more authentic because right. none of them is. Yes. but well, all of them are. There is... There is my brother, who's a sociologist, told me once about the distinction between a revolutionary and a criminal. He said, <laughs> a revolutionary is somebody who says, these laws don't apply to me. A criminal is somebody who says, these laws apply, but I'm breaking them. Okay. I think for a large part of the Orthodox world, they may be criminals, but they're not revolutionaries. The reform conservative, the liberal world, they're revolutionaries. They're saying, it's true all these ideologies may only be 200 years old, but we're making a conscious break because we don't accept some of the canons of the past. And that's different from saying 
We're not making a conscious break. We accept the canons of the past. You may see us as breaking, but we don't see ourselves that way. Right, but sort of the artificial closeness of the Jewish community to the world, that in and of itself is an innovation. Yes, absolutely. So I mean, there are a thousand different ways in which we are very different than our predecessors. And, and I agree that that makes authenticity a very tricky concept. But the question that you're asking, which I don't have a good answer for, is how do you introduce a conversation of depth among people, not only who are uncertain of their own authenticity, but are not deeply learned in the tradition that they're supposed to be speaking deeply about? Right. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's a I, negative chicken situation. It really is. And I've thought many times about the fact that the American Jewish community tried to build an authentic Jewish life without a Jewish language. That, that American Jews don't speak Hebrew is a real detriment to access to the tradition. We are probably the only major Jewish community that hasn't created a Jewish it's language. language. Right. There's no Ladino, there's no Yiddish, there's right. no Judeo-Arabic, there's just English. And that's a problem. And not even English, a mixture of English right. and Hebrew. No. Everybody, you know, you'll see these terms here and there, but anybody in New York uses it. That's right. So, and, and talking about authenticity, like how do you define where the limits are. When, when do you say this really is a break with the tradition that I'm not comfortable with? So for me, I'm, as you may know, it was same-sex marriage. I know that there are some people who make a halachic argument, but I really didn't accept the, the authenticity, I'll put it that way, of the argument. And the only way that I could justify it was that I think the tradition didn't understand what it really meant to be of a certain sexual orientation. And we have to revise our approach to marrying two Jews who, of two men or two women who want to marry each other. And, and I, I couldn't, I could make a halachic argument, but I didn't believe in my own argument. So I didn't right. do it. Right. So instead I said, look, I think that the tradition, the weight of the tradition is against this, but I really think that it's morally right. And I understand all the problems with that, but I couldn't any longer sustain not doing it. Is there, a, is there a contrary example? Sometimes where your modern liberal values told you X and tradition told you Y and you went with tradition. Um, well, there, I, the, I would say probably, it's funny, I'm, I'm about to teach um, what the Jewish tradition teaches about abortion. So... There, I think, anybody who is honest to the tradition would say the Jewish tradition just cannot, almost cannot be twisted to support abortion on demand. Mm. It can be, it has to be some kind of serious right. threat to the life, health, stability, something of the mother. Um, and that's at odds with the position that I think a lot of modern Jews would take, and they have to be honest with this right. if they're going to, you know, um, if they're going to be honest with what the tradition says as opposed to what they feel. An easy one is intermarriage, right? There's a lot of pressure to marry Jews and non-Jews, and I won't do it, and I won't do it for two reasons, basically. Um, the first reason is when I marry a couple and I say Kadat Moshe in Israel, according to the laws of Moses and Israel, one party, the laws don't apply to them. So how could it possibly be 
I mean, the laws don't, I, you could make an argument for same-sex marriage. You can't make an argument for somebody who's not a Jew. And then I have to ask myself, is doing an intermarriage going to promote what I'm supposed to be giving my life to promoting? And the answer is no, at least not to me. I understand that it's going to happen, that we live in America. Um, and I understand that you have to try to make the non-Jewish spouse, if they could be brought into any kind of Jewish world, as comfortable and welcome as possible. But give my blessing to it, at least to me, is to betray what I went into this to do. Um, let's shift gear for a, for a minute. You you live um, in a community, and, you, and you're yeah. the spiritual leader of a community that is very diverse. Yes. And we live in a time where diversity seems um, challenged, to say the Tricky. Very tricky. tricky. Yes. Um, how do you manage? So I would talk about two different divides in my congregation. They're not perfectly aligned, but they're both, they, the, one has something to do with the other. Um, first of all, about half my congregation are Iranian Jews. And I would say in these days, I think the real divide is Trump supporters and, and people who, I don't even want to say who oppose Trump, but people who detest Trump. Um, and, and those two divisions, the first division is, is less difficult to negotiate. I mean, there are different cultures and people have to get to know one another and all of that. Um, the school helps a lot with that because when parents meet and their kids meet, um, and, and at the end of the day, you just say, we're all Jews. The other division is much harder. And, and I've taken the position, which a lot of people don't like, and I understand why they don't like it, but I've taken the position that rabbis actually shouldn't talk about politics from the pulpit. First of all, because what has happened in our time is every rabbi who speaks about politics from the pulpit, they basically have a Democratic or a Republican synagogue. And I think that that's a bad way to have a synagogue. No, if you're of this side or that side, just know that you won't find any place here. Um, and second, because I think that there are, in the end, very, very few issues that are of such moral urgency that the rabbi should preach them when they're really as, as a moral issue instead of as a political issue. So I will give you a, a, an example. In Charlottesville, when somebody can't condemn a Nazi, yeah. for Jews, that should be easy. You have to condemn Nazis. You can't say good people are marching with Nazis. Yeah. So I, that was the only time I ever got booed by a Jewish audience, by the way. I said that in Orange County in a debate with Dennis Prager right after Charlottesville, and I got booed. Um, but people in your congregation, you know, Yes, I, other other people you. other people applauded. Some of them did. Um, some of them some of them were, were very unhappy. So, for example, on immigration, I said, "Look, I don't know what the right immigration policy is. I don't know if we should not let another person in this country. Maybe that's right. I don't know if we should open gates. Maybe that's right. I know you shouldn't put children in cages. That I know. Okay, but more than that, I think that for rabbis to argue immigration policy is is a ridiculous overreach of what they know. Because there are people in my congregation who have actually studied immigration policy and have studied, for example, whether to raise the minimum wage or not. And for, for me to make that a subject of a sermon, I think, is to, is to use the pulpit to advance views that I don't know any better than they do. But yet you talk about values. Yes. That 
are underlying those things. You talk about loving the stranger. You talk about respecting yes. the difference. But that's not the only value that applies to immigration. There are also values of self-defense. There are also values of the, right, of the values of the society. I mean, if somebody says to me, what about all the Middle Eastern refugees? I understand the person on the other side who says, look, the Middle East is infected with viral anti-Semitism. People, like, it's weaned with their mother's milk. How many people do you want to bring to, to the United States that grow up in such anti-Semitic climates? Right. So... That's what I'm saying is it's a debate. It's a political debate. So right. yes, I can talk about loving the stranger, um, but that doesn't, that's not the same thing as therefore you should have X number of immigrants coming to the United States. Right. When you're building all this credibility with people that respect you because you take this careful approach, when, when do you use when it? When do you use it? When it's a great, no, it's a great question because I think about it a lot. You know, Jacob said, yes. if, you, if, if a gun gets introduced in the second act, that's right. It's it has to be used in the fourth. has to go off in the fourth. Yeah. So I think about that a lot. First of all, I use it with Israel. Um, I actually think I use it when it comes to what to me are fundamental human values that aren't susceptible to political arguments. So for example, when a couple of Palestinian children were killed on a beach, I gave a sermon and I said, if you say it's a tragedy, Palestinian children were killed, but it's important because any but precedes what goes before it. You have to be able to say the killing of tra Palestinian children is a tragedy, period. Just like the killing of people in, a, in you have to be able to say Baruch Goldstein's killing of, of, of Muslims in a, in a mosque is a, is a chil Hashem, it's a desecration of God's name. Um, but you have to do that rarely, or what happens is nobody who doesn't agree with you will listen to you. You lose it so fast, so fast. And I still do, by the way. Yeah. I still do. There are some people who say, will tell me, oh, you're, you're a rightist or you're a leftist. You're, but they, they, because the goalposts are moving all the time. They're moving all the time. All the time. And also because technology freezes your opinion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So if you say something bad about somebody, it's there. It's always there. Technology also rewards outrage yes. and extremism. It does. So much so. spiritual and intellectual journey. I mean, you mentioned, I, I noticed that you mentioned Thoreau quite a lot. And Emerson. Emerson. And it's Emerson. Yes. Yes. Emerson. I love Emerson. Um, yeah. I love Emerson because I feel as though Emerson was somebody who had a deep spiritual sense and came from a religious background, but was trying to embrace a new world and create a new spiritual language for this new world. And I really do feel like that's what the Jewish community has been trying to do and needs to do. There will always be Jews who will be satisfied with the traditional Jewish language, but most Jews aren't. And so we need to craft a new kind of language for this new world that we're in. Um, and so Emerson speaks very powerfully to me. The other figure that speaks very powerfully to me is the Kotzka Rebbe, because he was a figure of radical honesty. Um, and, and that, I think, is increasingly hard in our world. What, the other thing that, that social media does is it encourages you to be dishonest, you know, because an authentic self is not, it's not interesting. It's not interesting. That's not who you want to present. Right.
the first book that I always recommend to people is Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl. Yeah. I was going to say, the Bible is not good. Right, exactly. <laughs> no, Bible's good too. But by the way, if you said to me, someone just asked me recently, what, what book would I recommend? And I didn't say the Bible, I said Ecclesiastes. Because Ecclesiastes is That's a book. Depressing. It It grows with you, though. It really does. As you get older, it really does grow with you. It's not the same book when you're 20, when you're 40, when you're 60. It's really... It's a remarkable book. Yeah, it has depressing moments, but, you know, so does life. But the truth is, you know, Ecclesiastes, like, you know, he, he spends the whole book saying that nothing yes. makes sense. Right. But then he writes it. Yeah. So if it doesn't make sense. Exactly. Why don't write it? That's right. Because At least communicating with other makes sense. Yes, that's right. And communicating with the other makes sense. And so does the desire to share that what you're feeling right now has been felt by others. You're not alone, you know? Yeah. And so, no, I, I find it a really beautiful and, and wonderful book. And Frankl, of course. It's, yeah. It, uh, I pers- it personally helped me to a lot. Yes, it's an amazing, amazing book. Identity is a spiritual quest, but it's also a relational No thing. doubt about it. I think you're exactly right. And I'm sure you know this with your work. Yeah. Is that... Funders may have abstract ideas, but uh, the only thing, the best, not the only, but the yeah. thing that most influence funders yeah. is their peers. Yeah. Who inspires right. them. Yes. Who, uh, I get asked a lot of times, what do we do to bring to the Jewish philanthropic world all these Jews, all these famous Jews that are very wealthy, but they don't give Jewish. Yes. I mean, you may know 80% sure. of Jewish philanthropic contributions go to no Jewish causes. And my answer is always... They need to get inspired by their peers. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you see it in your world too. Like, if somebody says, I give to Jewish causes because it does this to me, it gives me meaning, it gives me joy, it rewards me in so many different ways, you should try it too. Yes. You know, so then probably they will try it. Um, there's a philanthropist, probably knowing me, you know, uh, Harold Greenspan, who, mm-hmm. who does that day in and day out. He meets with wealthy Jews that are not. I mean, of course, he's you know trying to support right. his, the, the work of his foundation, but he's also bringing people along, in and it's it's what works the most. Uh, yes. But speaking about philanthropists, what do you think they should be focusing on? What are the what are the burning issues? Not not of today, not of tomorrow, right. but of the next thirty years. Well, I mean, central to me is Jewish education because without learning, there is nothing. There's nothing. There's no Jewish life without Jewish learning. Any particular vehicle that you like the most? I was most influenced by Jewish summer camps. That's not true for everyone, but I was. Even more than going to day school, I was influenced by Jewish summer camps. Um, By the way, I was most influenced by, uh, not as a camper, but as a counselor. Um, When I was a camper, I didn't like it so much, but as a counselor, I really loved it. Um, So that's that's one thing. But I, I also, I think that um, introducing adults to Jewish learning is incredibly important because when they're kids, they, don't, they can't actually deal with the issues that you and I have just been talking about. Right. So who, who said we're uh, inoculated with a, with a small dose of Judaism when we're right. children so we don't catch the real thing with the rabbis? <laughs> exactly what happened. So for example, what Wexner did is a great, uh, example, and I wish there were more serious adult Jewish learning. I think 
TICVA is trying to do some of that now. I'm going to be teaching for their high school students during the summer just because I thought it would be an interesting experiment to try. Those kinds of things I think are incredibly important. I think I taught a class called what the Christians call religious formation. That is what it means to be a religious person in a modern society. That's a really incredibly important because it means something ethically and morally, but also like as as a model. I was I was sitting on the plane on the way here, and the guy next to me handed his jacket to this to the flight attendant and knocked my drink over and it spilled on my suit. And I'm wearing a kippah. So I knew because I'm wearing a kippah, I can't get upset. I wouldn't have anyway. I mean, it was water, it was no big deal. But I thought, I'm now, like, I'm representing the Jewish people. I don't want to get upset with it. And, and that idea, the idea that you have to be a certain way in society because you're Jewish, is an idea that I think is incredibly important. Has your own concept of God changed over time? Yes. My concept of God has gotten much more abstract over time. Much more, more like abstract. A, like a Spinozian God? Closer, a lot closer to a Spinozian God than it was when I was young. Or I would say the God of the, of the Kabbalists, the classical Kabbalists. Like that God is ultimately unknowable, unreachable, like, like Rambam too, who was not a Kabbalist, even though some people think he was. Unknowable, but whose presence still suffuses the world. It's a strange combination. Whereas I used to think of God, you know, the God of the Tanakh is much more personal. The God that I've come to is much more impersonal, but also pervasive. I'd say also that the people who are sitting in the room at the Jewish Funders Network are people of astonishing ability and accomplishment. So. I would never despair of the Jewish future because even apart from whatever faith you may have in the Kaddish Baruch Hu's plans for us, in, in the divine plan for the Jewish people, there are also these people of passion and drive and intellect and incredible gifts. And so I would never bet against the future of the Jewish people because that's been done many times in history. It is a losing bet. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Rabbi Wolpe. You can follow him on Twitter at Rabbi Wolpe. And more information about him can be found at sinaitemple.org. I'm also an avid follower of his podcast that I warmly recommend. In a moment, we'll preview next week's episode. But first, thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, guest ideas, philanthropic dilemmas, original songs about Jeff, and whatever you want to tell us. Just write us at podcast at jfunders.org. Keep up with the work of the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter at jfunders. You can follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. 
Next week, we'll talk to Gali Cooks, the inaugural president and CEO of Leading Edge. There are 9,500 Jewish organizations in the United States. 75% of those leaders who are leading those organizations will turn over in the next five years. Be sure to subscribe in your podcast app to catch that episode and the following ones. I'll leave you with this thought from the writer Nora Ephron. Above all, be the heroine in your life, not the victim. So stay strong, keep giving, never think yourself as a victim, and join us next time for What Gives.